0: It's Wednesday, June the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, we wanted to take a look at a concept which has been around for a long time in political discourse internationally, but also in Ireland, where I think it has a certain distinctly local sort of a flavour. I am talking about Middle Ireland, which is a place defined in different ways by different people, but which seems to exert a sort of a hold on the popular political imagination, particularly the imagination of Fine Gael in recent years weeks. So who defines the middle of Ireland? And is it as squeezed and in as need of relief as much as three junior Fine Gael ministers suggested in an article supported by their party leader, Leah Varadkar, recently? To discuss this, I'm joined by political economist Aidan Regan from University College Dublin and by Jennifer Bray from our political staff. Hello to you both. Good morning. Hi. I'll take the political angle first, Jen, if I can. Mm. Why does this phrase keep cropping up in the political conversation, do you think?
1: Well, personally, like I remembered, I think the first time I started hearing the phrase squeezed middle kind of be used more and more often was somewhere around 2014. Um, I do always associate it with Fine Gael, Um And you mentioned your reference there, the three junior ministers who came out recently and called for uh, basically a tax break of up to €1,000 for a full-time worker on €52,000. Um that was the first kind of budget kite that was flown effectively. Um, and it, we came back again. That's why we're talking about people should really, you know, get ready for a whole half an hour of squeeze middle conversation. You're going to hear that phrase more times than you're comfortable with. Um, but I think it's a really interesting phrase politically because it's vague. You know, it's quite vague. That, you know, you could think you were in the squeeze middle, but not actually meet the technical definitions. And Cathy Sheridan had a really... Interesting piece about this, where she really cleverly outlined what different political parties say or how they define who's in the squeezed middle. Like she referenced Sinn Fein's Pierce Doherty. He said that workers uh, in the squeezed middle are those who are earning 35,000 euro or less. Uh, And then she referenced Social Justice Ireland, which defines uh, the middle um, as a single PAY worker earning around 40,000. So now we've got 40,000. And then you have uh, Grant Thornton who talked about the squeezed middle as a family of four with two earners on 90 grand. Um, and long story short, it was the CSO who kind of defined the squeezed middle, the true middle. And, and that is an earner in Ireland making in and around 33,000 euros a year. So, so Pierce Doherty seems to be kind of more, more on the money there. But like I say, it's a very politically vague term, but it has taken on this kind of whole loaded meaning. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later.
0: I mean, I suppose it's deliberately vague, isn't it, Aidan? Because it's more politically advantageous, the vaguer you make it. And so that people can say, oh, yeah, that includes me.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think there's the political aspect, then there's kind of the economic aspect. And Politically, it's a term that has been used by Fine Gael a lot, uh, as Jennifer said. But actually, you know, I think there's a fairly clear definition of what is kind of middle income, right? And I use the definition that, for example, with my students, if I'm teaching this, that is from the OECD. So the OECD published a report in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, with a strange title, actually, for the OECD. It was called the squeezed middle class. Right. So they were using that term to squeeze middle class and they define kind of middle income, which, again, is middle income, middle class. Class is a wealth based definition. We could get onto that in a moment. But middle income, they define as a household with disposable income that falls somewhere between seventy-five to two hundred percent of the national median, right? So national median income uh, in Ireland, according to the EU survey on in income and living conditions, is about forty-seven thousand euros, right? Forty-seven thousand euros on average. Household that's
0: per household, as opposed per household. to per individual.
2: And we could get into the individuals of it if you like, but per household, which is about three thousand eight hundred a month, right? So so seventy-five percent of that. is anything between 34 and a half, let's say 35,000 for argument's sake, to 92,000, right? So any household with disposable income that falls between 35,000 and 92,000, according to the OECD's definition, is technically speaking the middle income. And they show that 60% of households in rich democracies on average fall within that category. Now they break it down further by saying, look, if you're on 35,000 euros disposable income per annum for a household, let's say it's two plus one or two kids, you know, you're know, you not exactly high income, right? So they, they define the lower end of that as lower middle income. They define the higher end of it as higher middle income. They define anybody who falls below the 35,000 figure for disposable household income as low income. And anybody above the, the, the 92,000, for example, in the Irish case, would be high income. So if you have disposable income of 90,000 or above as a household in Ireland, you're high income. If you have anything below 35, you're low income. But if you're somewhere between that, you're broadly middle income. Now, you put all these numbers aside, and you break it down on an individual basis. It kind of does fall quite close to what Jennifer just said on an individual level. To be more precise, it's probably about 31,000, right? Which means that you're already not paying the higher rate of tax, et cetera, and so on. So there is actually a statistical definition of what is middle income. And it's between 75 and 200% of the national median. But again, it matters if we focus on earned income, non-earned income disposable income, pre-tax, after taxes lots of different things you could get into there uh, if you want to bore your listeners with the detail.
0: <laughs> well, that's what we're here to do and what we try and do every week. I, I, you know, actually, I mean, those are very helpful numbers, I think. And it is interesting that they, they essentially, you know, run all the way from what Jen described as the Sinn Féin definition to the Grant Thornton definition. So while they're useful, they're also extremely broad and the devil is sort of in the detail, isn't it? And, you know, there are lies, damned lies and statistics And, you know, there are three people sitting in this studio at the moment. You could say what their average income is and then a rich person could come in. And then you say, what's the average income? And it goes up, you know, Mm -hmm. by uh, substantially. And so people do tend to pluck these numbers out. And some people go for a median, which is in some ways more representative. Some people go for talk about an average. An average tends to push the number up, doesn't it?
2: it? It does, exactly. And see, there's a long tradition in political science of treating the, the, the kind of the voter, if you like, that falls between kind of median to mean income as the critically decisive voter. So when when, when political parties say they're chasing that middle income vote, uh, to use the more political narrative as Jennifer, Jennifer was alluding to, it's typically that voter that falls between the kind of median to mean. The mean, the average, is typically higher than the median because, as you say, somebody who's a millionaire walks into this room, all of a sudden, all of us are millionaires, right? So so if I'm not mistaken, based on those numbers, like if you look at it at a household level, that's basically households that fall between 47 to 50 Fifty-six thousand. So if I was if I was a politician, I would be thinking the critically decisive voter that is middle income at a household level would fall between that kind of forty-seven to fifty-six thousand disposable income, right? Which actually means their gross income before taxes is a bit higher. Hence, when Finnegale are talking about their kind of critically decisive voter, it, it seems to me it's quite obvious that they're talking with people that are actually in the top quintile the top 20% of the income distribution. It's not really median or middle income, but politically, of course, it sounds much better to talk about something that's in the middle, whereas in actual fact, it's really in the top 20%.
0: Mm. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more in a minute about who, who Fine Gael are, are specifically targeting. But it is an interesting point that Aidan makes there about even the phrase middle, where we, if we take it out of the economic space for for a second, Jen, and look at it in the political area, the middle area, by definition, is the one that's contested. It's the one that's going to win you the election. There are hardcore supporters for specific parties, and then there are, in theory at least, this floating group in the middle who can be appealed to with targeted pledges of one sort or another. So it's got a political as well as an economic reality, doesn't it?
1: Oh, there's definitely a political reality. I think the idea of the squeeze middle and targeting those votes, I mean, I, th- I think it's really politically potent. And the reason why is because, you know, I don't know what you are in queue and I don't know what you are, Aidan, and a lot of us can presume that we are, in fact, ourselves, the squeezed middle. Um, and I think if you were to survey people and ask them, you know, would you consider yourself to be, I would say up to anywhere up to 70% of people probably would consider themselves to be part of the squeezed middle. Um, and there's a whole lot of different reasons for that. Um, and I think, like, politically, Finnegale, what what it says to me when they come out with a budget call, like, you know, the, the €1,000 um, kite that was flown, that tells me that they are looking to their own base and trying to shore up what they presume they already have. Now, we know they are somewhere between 20%, 25%, in that kind of 5% range in, in the polls at the moment. I think they're speaking to their own and trying to shore up that vote. I think the difference really is actually that I do genuinely believe a lot of those votes are up for grabs. Like you mentioned this idea of kind of specific ideas to appeal to this whole swathe of, of of people. But I do believe, and we've seen it now in the success of Sinn Féin, that those votes are continuously and more often um, up for up for grabs. Um, I i. Personally, think the the vagueness of it, um, kind of shows me a little bit the Finnegal are a little bit out of touch because, if you actually look at what wage you would need to be earning in order to benefit from the maximum, let's say of of that one thousand euro, um, idea, you'd need to be somewhere over forty five thousand. And we've already talked a little bit about the actual different levels and the fact that actually middle income or, or squeeze middle is probably somewhere closer to between 30, 35. um, so. I would just question how in touch they are with even their own ideas, because like you said, you'd have to be probably in the top third of earners in order to benefit from that. So is that Finnegale's definition of the squeeze middle? And if so, isn't that very interesting?
0: Well, among the many things I wonder about this is, I was rooting around on Google, Aidan, about this to say, where did this phrase come from? Not just in Ireland, but internationally. There's two things that immediately jumped out at me. Um, Nancy Pelosi, I think, was one of the early adopters of it, 15 years or so in American politics back in, in 2006. And she talked about the squeezed middle class. Not a word that seems to crop up in the Irish uh, debate so much. And uh, Ed Miliband did the same in his unsuccessful electoral campaign in the UK a little bit less than uh, ten years ago. So those were all both parties of the centre left who it seemed to me were trying to position themselves again to appeal to that contested electoral ground in the middle and to say we're not just a party of the you know of the poor or of, of lower low income earners. We're also you know we're also fighting for the middle people. But in Ireland, as Jen has just laid out, this. Phrase seems to be associated with the center right. Why do you think that might be?
2: Yeah, it's a good observation. I think, well, as we know in the US, middle class is a kind of a a way to describe the working class, right? Because nobody likes to refer to themselves as the working class. And a bit bit of that going on in the UK as well. But I think, you know, so it's why, I think to a certain extent we've touched on it already. I think Finnegale understand why. I think they do actually know who they're targeting. I think they know that they're targeting about a quarter of the electorate. I think they understand that they're not going to compete for basically 50% of the electorate. I, I think they get that. And they're targeting 25% of the electorate who they're in competition with, let's say, with know Fall, to a certain extent with the Greens, and maybe other center-left kind of Labour Social Democrat voters. They probably know they're not likely to get that Sinn Féin vote or the anchor of it, at least. So it seems to me that they're targeting. That voter or that or, and I think they are actually targeting households, which is why I kind of tend to think about this in terms of household income. They're targeting certain households, probably two earning couples with one or two kids who have fallen into the higher rate of tax. And they know that. And all of a sudden they're now paying, you know, more than they were previously over the past two years because their wages have gone up. They probably are paying privately for childcare. They probably have private health insurance as well. They are, even though they may not think it in the top 10 to 20% of the income distribution, they feel squeezed because they are paying quite significant uh, amounts of their disposable income on either mortgage or rent. Uh, or they're not going to get the rental vote. It's really mortgage owners or homeowners, plus the fact that, so I think they know who they're targeting. And the reality is there is a cohort of those voters. They're not particularly high income. They're not low income. They're not really squeezed in the way somebody on, on low income is, for example. But they do feel like they're paying a lot out of their disposable income and not getting anything in return. So it seems to me that Fine Gael know that basically we have now basically European-style taxes, European-style income taxes, but US, UK-style public services and therefore, a lot of people are paying privately for those services and they want some of their money back in tax cuts. And I think Fine Gael know that by a narrative of income tax cuts, which is in the Irish case and increasingly in Western Europe, a kind of centre-right, liberal centre-right policy platform, I think they know exactly what they're doing. And I think there is actually votes up in it for them.
0: When you say that these people feel that they're getting a raw deal, essentially, I mean... Is there any justification for that? The, the kind of description of, the, of of this cohort, people, is often that um, they're paying at least some of their income at the highest rate of tax, that they enter that, that band at a much earlier rate than people do in, in many other countries, and that they don't have access to many of the state supports which those taxes are going to pay for, be that for childcare support, medical cards, maybe some for, you know, HAP or rent assistance. They don't have access to any of those things. So they're kind of screwed on both ends.
2: Yeah, and again, so so there's kind of two aspects to this. I think a lot of people don't actually realize how much they get back in terms of what they pay their taxes on. Their kids might be a university and they might be complaining about being squeezed on taxes, but they're having 20, Turkey grand subsidized every year for their kids to be in college, for example, or who will be in college. They probably don't fully realize the same is going on at primary, secondary education. The problem is, I think in Ireland, and this is where I think Ireland does differ from Western Europe, for example because we have a kind of public-private system whereby a lot of people buy out of the public system, they pay privately for their secondary education for their kids, they pay privately for childcare, they pay privately for their health insurance, that they don't feel like they're getting the return on the taxes that they, that they pay. And that wouldn't be the case, for example, in a lot of other Western European countries. So it is true that, you know... our you do enter into the higher rate of tax of 40% at a relatively lower income than you would comparative to a lot of other countries. But that's a problem of the fact that we have this very, very odd two-band system, 20%, 40%. And every other country I've lived in Europe, you know, you have tiered systems. Even if you're the lowest earner, I lived in the Netherlands for a few years as a PhD student and was paying income tax on a, on a PhD stipend. Everybody pays in. We have a very peculiar system like that. But to keep it simple, it is true that people enter at the higher rate. But it's not quite true that they don't get anything back in return. Right. But I do think people there is a strong sense and it's not unjustified that perhaps public services, public infrastructure are not quite what they ought to be, given the level of income tax that a lot of people are paying. But of course, Fine Gael have been in government for the past 13 years, so maybe they can answer why is that right?
0: Well, I'm sure, and we'll get to do that. And just say, this is not a Bash Finnegale podcast. It is based on a Finnegall concept, and we are we are seeking to to interrogate it. And actually, one of the many things that strike me about what you've just said there, Aidan, but just to just to follow up on one thing, there are many peculiarities to the Irish system as we know in terms of our the way our tax base works and the strange kind of I don't know kind of ups and downs of the Irish economic model as well uh, over the years. But one is that Ireland is, um, by all international standards, a very unequal country before taxes and social transfers kick in. And those taxes and social transfers do a lot of heavy lifting, do a lot of work to kind of get Ireland back to a sort of a not-so-bad situation by comparison with, with, with similar countries after that. But a result of that probably is, is that the, our system has to do all that heavy lifting and maybe that's part of the reason why it doesn't provide the good infrastructure, the, the medical system, the education system, the childcare that other similar countries do.
2: That's exactly right. And I think you've touched on this in this podcast a few times in the past. I mean, again, to put it quite rather simply for, for your listeners, you know, market incomes in Ireland are highly unequally distributed, right? There's a very large cohort of people who earn very low incomes or very low wages and earnings in the labour market. But there's also a lot of people who earn very high wages and earnings. So you have quite a polarised earning system. And that's probably a function of the fact that we do have a really unusual economy with lots of foreign investment, large multinationals, and you have a domestic economy and an international economy, and they're hugely disconnected from each other. And that shows itself up in the GDP figures, where Ireland in GDP terms is the richest country in the EU after Luxembourg, but then on actual individual consumption, we're 10% below the EU average, right? That's more a reflection of the domestic economy. So how is it that we have this very unequal market economy People might say a lot of single earners, a lot of people can't access the market because of childcare, welfare traps, these kind of things. But it is a reality. The implication, however, is that the state then intervenes and taxes and redistributes a lot of income to minimize inequality such that post-market, that is, disposable income inequality, is a lot lower than it otherwise would be and brings us into about the European average. That's a function of the welfare state. If you believe in the welfare state and you believe in kind of reducing inequalities, well, then that's a good thing. If you don't believe in the welfare state and you don't believe the state ought to be reducing inequalities, well, you probably think that's a bad thing. Hence, if you don't believe in that and you're paying high taxes, you're probably saying, well, I'm paying too many taxes to reduce inequality. Why are people not? So that's when you get into the obvious political classic left right divide between those who want to see the government reducing inequalities and those who don't. But in Ireland, there's been a long historical commitment to the state taxing and redistributing through the welfare state. Uh, but the question fundamentally, I think, remains, and, and, and this is, I think, what you're getting at, is why are market incomes, why are earnings so unequally distributed in the first place? Why are we more like UK and the USA in this regard?
0: So I suppose then, Jen, the, the thing that strikes me about that is that we, we, we ran a poll when we were running our North-South project there a few, uh, a few months ago. And among its findings which I found particularly interesting was the, the great majority of Irish people, somewhere approaching two thirds to maybe even three quarters, define themselves essentially as being the centre the centre left or further further to the left, and very few people define themselves as politically conservative. So that's a you know that's a pretty strong commitment to a certain approach to the kind of tax and spend you know policies that we're talking about here. So Finnegale are attempting to appeal to really quite a distinct and relatively small part of the Irish electorate, really, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think they, I think they are. I think they've always been kind of maybe centre right, um, economically speaking. Um, now it's interesting you say that, though, because I've been talking to a couple of different people with, and like you say, it's not a Fine Gael bashing podcast, but it is. They do say that this idea of squeeze middle being part of their identity, so it's actually fair enough that they they keep coming up. There's a couple of people in Fine Gael who I think actually feel the party is moving increasingly towards the left, um, and they're, I'm picking up on a little bit of discomfort about that. Um, but I think like to, to go back to the previous point, and this kind of feeds into it. There's the two major elements which you've both talked about. There, um, the first one being about state doing heavy lifting in terms of income equality. Like it absolutely does do heavy lifting. That's completely true. There was the survey. I remember we covered it last year in the paper on income and living conditions, and this idea of the social transfers. And there was really interesting stuff in there. It found that without social transfers. The poverty rate or at risk of poverty rate would be in 38.6%. That's a massive figure. Uh, when you factored in social transfers, this reduced to 11.6%. So you can see there, that tells you all the heavy lifting that is, has that is been done. And then if you look on the other side of, of the argument, are we a high personal tax, low state provision country? Uh, yes, I think so, but it depends on on how much you earn. Um, so the, obviously that the more you earn, the higher rates of tax you'll pay. And if you look internationally at the state, um, you know, for lower income earners, we're actually pretty good, I think, compared to although international comparisons can be actually quite tricky. I was trying to search around before this podcast to try and get a better idea of it. Um, but once you move up towards the 70,000, and then beyond a hundred thousand, the state shoots right up to the top of of the league table. Um, and I just think that that's a really interesting point when you marry the two: this idea of the social transfers, that role in politics, and and this version of Ireland, high personal tax if you pay if you earn more money, low social provision. And then you're getting into the question of, well, what exactly? You know, because I think one of the things you, you often look at and talk about in this podcast is, what do people get back for that? And that's a whole other question we can get into. Um, this idea of, are the squeeze middle effectively falling outside of that range of earning just a little bit too much to qualify for certain state supports, but not earning enough effectively to be able to pay for the basics, especially now we're in this super... you know, inflationary environment. There's
0: one other part of this before we take a break, Aiden, um, That strikes me about it that you know, successful centre-right parties in other countries and here, uh, and it's perfectly legitimate, by the way, to be a to be a centre-right party. They do so by appealing not just to the top twenty percent of the population, but to a larger amount of the population to try and achieve a majority or something close to it. And they often do that by um, by laying out a set of values which are based around notions like aspiration and the idea of being able to get on in life, raise your, family, you know, you know, uh, invest in a property, uh, build your career, maybe build a small business. So they're about what the state is going to permit you or allow you uh, to do in terms of making a success of your life. That was very much the, I could hear that in Leo Varadkar's interview with with Pat Leahy uh, uh, a week or two ago too. And that's really how they achieve their majority, doesn't it? And how does that fit into this, the aspirational element?
2: I think it overlaps with the debate which you might have about when does middle income become middle class? And I think having middle income no longer is enough to reach a middle class lifestyle because middle class typically means home ownership. So, does middle income today, for example, give you uh, access to home ownership? And the answer to that question is no, certainly not if you're on low to middle income. And I think this, for example, was highlighted quite clearly in the OECD report in 2019 on the squeeze middle, where they showed that in the 90s, 65% of Populations in rich democracies typically fell within that 75 to 200% middle income bracket. that has fallen to 60%. But more specifically, what they show is that as a percentage of disposable income, households are spending much more now on things like healthcare, education, childcare, and the cost of housing in particular has gone up depending on the country in question. Anything between a quarter to a third of disposable income spent on either mortgages or rent. And I think it's this decline in the aspirational homeowning class that is really critical. Uh, to the centre-right, because as that declines, centre-right parties really lose their political base. And if you want to break down sort of income, middle income, in the Irish case, homeowners have a significantly higher uh, income, right? So median income for homeowners is about 55,000. So national median income, right, for homeowners, disposable income that is, is about 55,000 per annum. For renters, it's about 38,000, right? So that already tells you something about the distinction between the homeowners and renters. So it seems to me that the problem for Finnegale politically speaking, is less on the question of middle income, giving people back thousand quid, 20 quid a week, three euros a day in, in disposable income. It might work, might get you some votes, but it's the decline in that aspirational homeowning class that I think is critically eating into their voter base, because historically, as you point out, Hugh, the centre-right have always built their anchor from home ownership. Fianna Fáil did that, for example. You know, the Tories did it in the UK, then Labour copied it by privatizing social housing. And we could go on back to history whereby even authoritarian right parties from Franco onwards always had this aspiration we need to have people owning property, home ownership, because if they do, well, they'll tolerate a lot of other stuff in society.
0: Well, a property-owning democracy is absolutely at the heart of kind of of traditional conservative policies, isn't it? It's the foundation of
2: capitalist democracy. So if the the property-owning class goes into decline, you might say that there's a crisis of capitalist democracy, not necessarily democracy, but capitalist democracy. And hence, unsurprisingly, if that goes into decline, you might get a shift in voters towards the left, which we see clearly uh, in the Irish case with the rise of Sinn Féin. So it seems to me that these things are very heavily correlated and it's difficult, I think, for Finegael to present themselves as the party of the aspirational homeowning class, given that they've been in government for almost 15 years. Homeownership rates are in decline for younger, younger households in particular. That's, you know, complex, not necessarily their fault, but it's intimately connected and they are perceived as that. But if they can kind of throw money at people by giving them tax cuts, it might kind of stave off, uh, you know,
0: that vote. Fine. Hold that thought, I'll come back to you on that, Jen, but we will take a quick break before I do, just to remind you, as always, that if you want to follow our journalism, you can go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, and there are lots of different options for signing up as a digital or a print subscriber, or indeed to both. We'll be back after this. Jen, Aidan was making a very interesting point before the break, and I'd be interested in your take on it too, which is, I suppose, to put it bluntly, all this stuff, just as always in Ireland at the moment, it comes back to housing.
1: It does it does it really does and and you know we reference I think Leo Varadkar in his interview with Pat Leahy he that you referenced there made that play didn't he for um increasing home ownership levels is qu- quite blatant um and if you look at Fianna Fáil they've traditionally historically prided themselves with being the, the party that built built houses um and realistically uh if you look at where we're at at the moment I don't think the government has made nearly enough progress honestly to be able to go to the electorate in 18 months' time and convince them that it is a job well done. Um, And we know that because we know all the statistics and the homeless levels, et cetera. And I think um, this whole debate that we're having here in the podcast, it's so interesting to me because if these parties are are making this direct play towards the squeeze middle, um, but actually these specific tax cuts that they're proposing only benefit, maybe the top third of, of, of earners, is there a complete overestimation in government about how much people actually earn? Um, and the idea of the squeeze middle as well is that they, uh, they're they suffering on both hands. You know, they're paying too much personal tax is the argument. And then they don't have access to um, state support. So, you know, if we bring it back to housing again, look at rental. So there's a lot of middle earners, if we want to use that phrase, who cannot find a rental property. And you go on daft.e you now and you can see there's really next to nothing available. Um, but they also don't qualify for the HAP support levels. Their income would be too high. Um, and then if you look like things like childcare is another massive bill for most kind of families. Uh, uh and families of all incomes. But there is two elements. There's a universal element, to the childcare subsidy. But then there's the other, uh, means tested element, and there's a cut off point of sixty thousand there as well. So I think there is a certain cohort of people who are being kind of pressed in from all sides and the government constantly make the play for them. Uh, but I, I think that's kind of lost. I really do, because I think there's an overestimation about how much money people have. Um, And realistically, that's a factor. But like you said, the housing thing, it'll all come back to housing when we have our podcasts and hopefully we get to our election dailies again in the next election. This is what we'll be talking about nearly every day, I would say.
0: I'm looking forward to that already, already by I the think, way. But maybe that debate then, I mean, the idea that the government doesn't know what the numbers are is is, is is kind of intriguing, Aiden. But like if we were doing a Swedish podcast right now, people would be able to get on the internet and find out how much you make and how much I make and how much Jen makes. And thank God, obviously, that, that that's not going to happen. But I am going to... Um, offered the the view, which I think is supported by facts, that um, Irish Times journalists and academics and various people in those kinds of walks of life are actually in that upper strata. And I wonder how much that influences or skews or maybe, you know, imbalances the way in which we we, we debate these issues.
2: It does entirely. and But actually, one could break it down by sector. I mean, so it seems to me A big structural, and I think a lot about this, right, a lot about it, but it seems to me the big structural shift that has taken place, not just in Ireland, but across all capitalist democracies, is that you've got a growth in higher education. More and more people have higher education. In the past, higher education correlated with high income and home ownership. They were just, you know, together. That's not necessarily the case anymore. You have a growing section of the electorate, about 20, 25 percent, who are higher education, but low to middle income, right? And I think it's that vote, for example, we show, we see comparatively in political science is the anchor of the centre-left. And actually, people who work in media and culture, I don't know about the Irish Times, are actually typically more in the lower to middle income. It is true university professors would be in the higher to middle income, but actually in culture and media, it's often women on low to middle income. And it's women who work in health and education and culture and media that are increasingly the anchor of the center left. They're higher educated, but not necessarily high income. So that is a big structural change whereby the left is very much anchored in that vote. But to answer your question directly, I, I do, of course, these things uh, bias our views, but if you understand the, the numbers, then it should also uh, tame your our understanding. I'm not sure I agree that Fine Gael don't understand this, though. I'm not that I would push back and say I think Fine Gael do understand it. I think they realize that we operate in a multi-party system. I think they know that they're going to go into opposition after the next election. I think they know they can call for all the tax cuts they want because they won't actually have to implement it in government. And I think they're positioning themselves against Fina Fáil, who may expect to be in government after the next election with Sinn Féin, and and Fine Gael are really positioning themselves as a center-right liberal party in opposition that will probably position itself as the income tax-cutting party. But there's a reason why they don't do it when in government, right? <laughs> because when in government, they understand that in order to pay for the things that people want, you need to have a stable tax base. And as all the reports, and as everybody knows in the Irish case, and as you touched on a moment ago, Jennifer, the peculiarity of the Irish tax system is that we've got an extremely narrow concentrated income tax base. High earners pay the vast majority of income taxes, Corporate taxes are highly concentrated in a small section of firms. So on that basis, Finegale know that there are high income earners who are really unhappy with the level of income tax they pay, and they see that as their vote. So they may call it middle income, but I think they know quite well that it's not really uh, who they're targeting. They're really targeting the top quintile, or more specifically, I would argue the top decile of the income distribution. And they may get it solid, they may get a solid 15 to 20% of the vote out of that.
0: Which brings us to a sort of internal debate within the government parties, which is going on right at the moment because we hear about it with well-sourced reports all the time, Jen, and we see its outcome in things like uh, reports from the Fiscal Advisory Council warning against tax cuts in, in in today's Irish times, for example, and that is that, you know, the current Minister for Finance and Minister for Public Expenditure um are not very keen on this stuff. So there is a tension there between uh, what you might characterized on the one hand as fiscal responsibility and on the other hand as a as a commitment to tax cuts and you know, I wonder how does that play out? Because the whole question of, I mean, we've, you know, we've seen the problems of counter-cyclical economics in, in, in Ireland before not being implemented and Charlie Charlie McCreevy's, when I have it, I spend it, you know, ending up ending up in tears. I mean, there has to be a fear of that too, doesn't there?
1: Of course, yeah. And look, let's call a spade a spade. These ideas that have been floated around, they're kites, you know, they're budget kites that are flown and shot down um, and that is like the point has been made here. That is in order to differentiate themselves, uh, like Aidan said, from Fianna Fáil. Um, And we know what they're doing there. But like, like you mentioned, if you look at the front page of the Irish Times this morning, you have the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council saying, no, basically, you know, this is a bad idea. Um, and it can't be done. I think they were talking about just the paying enough to stand still. Even just putting that money aside leaves you with very little for these great ideas of, of tax cuts, etc., um, And the fact that the government would be potentially relying on these really volatile, uh, insecure, uh, unreliable flows of cash from 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 multinationals in the precarious position that could leave us in in the future. So what will happen really is we'll have the summer economic statement that will actually say, here's your budget envelope. Now, they always find money down the back of the couch beforehand in this way and that way or different revenue raising measures. But that will basically give you the envelope. So realistically, you'll know pretty much what the parameters of the budget are very soon, by the time they go into the summer recess, and then they'll have to operate within those constraints when it comes to the budget unless they blow the spending rules. Um, so so much of this is what I'm saying. So much of this is not hot air because there is a political aim. Um, like Aidan said, and I totally agree with that. Um, but I find, I find it very hard to get excited about <laughs> budget flyers. Blast.
0: Well, you're doing your best. I guess, to, be, to, to be fair, um, there is a, a question. It seems to me of simple kind of tax justice, for want of a, a better phrase, Aiden, which is that if you're in a at a moment of relatively high inflation, area as we are at the moment, and if inflation's running at six, seven, eight percent, and people are getting wage increases, probably not even you know achieving that, but trying to match it, so maybe getting wage increases of five percent, and if those wage increases bump some of their income uh, into a higher tax band, even though they're effectively you know, they're actually being worse off in terms of their gross pay. I mean, the tax ban should take account of that, shouldn't they?
2: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, you know, I think there is a case for income tax reform in Ireland. Um, I mean, the government's own independent commission on tax and welfare gives lots of very interesting ideas about how to reform the tax base. The objective, however, and I think anybody who who has, you know, a non-political view of this, if, they're, if one can have a non-political view of taxation, they can't let me even take that back. If the objective is to widen the tax base to afford and to invest and to finance those things that people want—health, social care, education, whatnot—well, then you have to stabilize that tax base somehow, and I think that's the real challenge, right? And it seems to me that uh, no government wants to go there for obvious reasons, right? Um, so the question of income tax reform ought to have been tackled a few years ago. The USC ought to have really been incorporated into the tax system. There should have been perhaps a conversation about having three different tax rates and bans, a kind of low, middle, higher rate. That's kind of what. So So you agree with
0: Leo Varadkar about that?
2: I do, actually. Yeah, I think there is a case that to, to introduce that, yes, precisely as, as Jennifer just outlined, because there is, you know, as you and as you just mentioned, you people's earnings are going up in response to inflation. And there are more people falling now into that higher rate of tax and they don't they're not getting the return on it. So, for example, a lot of numbers we've been talking about are nominal figures, not even adjusted for inflation. Right. Um, but if you adjust for inflation, people's real purchasing power is falling for, 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 for because of the inflation environment. So there is a case for, for income tax reform. There is a case for adjusting bands and rates, etc. But it seems to me the objective really ought to be widening the tax base. There's no political party on the left or the right of the Irish political spectrum that is willing to say low earners need to pay more, right? Uh, middle earners need to pay maybe just a little bit more high earners are probably paying enough nobody wants to say that right and no party on the left is going to say that but if you wanted to have social democratic public service and infrastructure that's what you'd kind of have to do um, so yes there is a case for income tax reform uh, it should have been done a few years ago but as as Jennifer said we're you know there's election kites flying you know <laughs> so a lot of this is just kind of yeah. positioning and signaling and carving out niches um, but there's no doubt about it. I mean, we do need to have a serious conversation with tax. And I've always said, it seems to me the corporate tax boom is just a giant kind of band-aid that's plastering over very difficult conversations we need to have about the tax base. And
0: do those tax questions not move beyond solely income tax important, though that is? You know, there's a whole question of, of taxes on wealth, which lots of countries do more effectively than we do. They make make a bigger contribution to the to the overall pot of money, whereas the parties on the left seem terrified of them.
2: Exactly. And one of the kind of takeaways from the Commission on Tax and Welfare was that we need to shift, for example, taxation, perhaps away from the flow of income towards kind of assets and wealth. And that might include introducing some sort of wealth tax. But given that housing is intimately connected to wealth in Ireland, that would inevitably include taxing the house, right? taxing the family home. And as you say, no party in the left wants to go there. No party in the right wants to go there. But that would be one obvious thing that you could potentially do. And, but yeah, that, 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 and there's, there's lots of other things there. But it seems to me that, um, the corporate tax boom just makes life so much easier for political parties to avoid these difficult uh, conversations and questions.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're all ending up cynical here, aren't we, Jen? Um, <laughs> I sounds sound cynical. You sound cynical. I'm, you're you're infecting me with your cynicism. My previous fresh-faced optimism is uh, is is disappearing. I mean, there's really little sign of any appetite for any real reform in any of this, is there?
1: Yeah, I see, Hugh. You know, I find you know any conversation about tax usually depresses me. <laughs> when I look at my bill and how much tax I pay, I, I feel utterly depressed. Um, But no, look, I think it's true to say that the many different reports, countless different reports, whether it's the Parliamentary Budget Office, whether it's any of the various different bodies um, feeding advice into the state, they all say that the the tax system needs reform. Um, And often they highlight the highly concentrated nature of income tax and the fact that a huge amount of income tax comes from the highest earners, effectively. But politically, they're not going to go there. I mean, when you think about a wealth tax, you think about that's a a Sinn Fein proposal. And I will be so interested uh, when we get into the nitty gritty of when we see parties' election manifestos and and proposals. Uh, exactly what they are proposing on a wealth tax. Will they have watered it down from what they promised previously? Because um, we know that they're meeting multinational companies now. We know that they're. Courting people who they previously wouldn't have even been seen dead talking to, um, but I think realistically, if we're looking at the the final eighteen months of this government, you won't see any major uh, overhaul of the of the tax system and the income tax. The, the government will not do anything in the next eighteen months that they think is unpopular, um, and this is where the interplay between financial responsibility and very interesting to hear Michael McGrath say, "I will not be bullied." We will see if he will not be bullied in the face of an election. Um, but yeah, it'd be, I, I think realistically, it's up to him to hold the line, and he will have ministers in and out of his office now, especially towards the end of the summer, with a list of demands, with a scroll of demands, and their eye on the election, and that's a fact. So you know, we have to be kind of realistic. The politicians are going to are going to be politicians.
0: Now, a last question to you. Something I mentioned at the at the top. I said that there's certain Irish national peculiarities to this debate, and and one of them, which I I mentioned, is uh, is the fact that the word class tends to crop up when this stuff is debated in other countries, and it seems to be kind of verboten here. You know, there's a, you know the worst criticism, you know, in Irish politics is that somebody's being ideological. I mean, I don't personally see anything wrong with somebody being ideological. I mean, you're you're a kind of a man of the left. I think I think it's fair to say, you know, the whole idea of class politics has been around for a long time and it's been kind of turned upside down in lots of countries by political developments in the last couple of decades. Is that really what's underpinning this? And particularly in relation to what you were just saying about this new sort of lower middle area of people working in in certain areas with university degrees but nowhere to live?
2: Yeah, I mean, just it's funny though what you say because what is like ideology and position of left, right? These things are also to a certain extent context specific. So you know, I have family and friends in other European countries who would perceive me as being kind of just another liberal centre right. Uh, uh, intellectual right? because of certain views I would have on tax and spend and labour market reforms, where in Ireland, you know, the kind of compass is slightly historically always has been a bit more to the centre-right. So, you know, there's not much of an intellectual space for, for for what you might call left-wing thinking. Now, that's kind of changing at the moment, but historically, you know, there was no centre-left intellectual space because we had a political system that was completely dominated by centre-right conservative thinking. Uh, so so that, I think, is part of the reason why there's a bit of a compass shift happening in Ireland. And it is true, and you touched on it earlier on, and I t- my own research would suggest this too, the average voter today in Ireland leans towards the centre-left. Now, that's not to say that they're not malleable, and it's not to say the parties can't compete, but I think it's fair to say that there is not a particularly large constituency for the right in Irish politics. Um, and, and, you know, Fine Gael has always kind of positioned itself a little bit in that direction. Now, I know I'm kind of going away from the question you asked, which I've almost forgotten, Steve, if you want to throw it back out to
0: <laughs> Jeez, I've almost forgotten it myself. No, it's, it's, you know, the idea of class politics underpinned oh, yeah. politics, you know, everywhere for a long time. I mean, it's debatable about whether it does in the same way or maybe it's yeah. just, it's changed quite profoundly. It seems to me that,
2: you know, there is quite clearly an class polarisation in Irish society. It seems to me that a lot of what people describe as kind of middle income or the kind of middle class and the struggling middle class are actually better defined as the new working class, right? Because there's been a structural change in the jobs and occupations that people do. We've never had an industrial working class base, but actually there's a lot of people with higher education, as I mentioned, earlier on, working in kind of public services or in kind of social services, private services, who actually are not on great incomes and don't really have much aspiration for home ownership. I refer to them in my own work and research and writing as kind of new working class. And and it seems to me that different parties are competing for that vote in different ways. But that's not to say, for example, that there are lots of people on very good high incomes in Ireland. You know, there is a kind of polarized economy. We have a very successful internationally competitive multinational sector. We have a lot of, you know, the, the economy is by any comparative measure doing extremely well. Uh, But the, the fruits and the beneficiaries of that are going to a relatively small section of the population directly. And that's the nature of the kind of knowledge economy. That's the nature of kind of contemporary capitalism, if you like. The state does a pretty good job at redistributing. But it's never going to satisfy, I think, people's aspirations. And I think it's in that context that you can understand why Sinn Fein have managed to position themselves as kind of, you might call it left populist or kind of, but really, if you look at their policies, it's, they're pretty run of the mill center left policies that they've articulated, uh, although they're coming at it from a very different class base. So, yeah, I do think that Irish politics is realigning along new class lines. I do think that you're probably likely to see Sinn Féin and Fine Gael as kind of two kind of competing parties in that class space. I think Fianna Fáil will struggle to create an identity for itself in that mix. And then the kind of centre left and green parties will probably continue to try to target well. University professors and, and media people, right? <laughs> so, so, so yeah, it, it, I think it is a very interesting time to be studying political science in
0: Ireland. A last question on the on the party politics of that, Jen. Does that landscape, um, which Aidan describes, does that suit Finnegale and Sinn Féin? We've seen signs in the past. I remember the Dublin Bay South by election. It kind of suited both parties, um, although neither of them won it in the end. So maybe, maybe that answers the question to kind of define themselves as being get Finnegale out or keep Sinn Féin out as being the, their their purpose to kind of create a new polarity in Irish politics. Is that what they both seem to be trying to do to some extent?
1: Oh, definitely. And we did an interview with um Simon Harris there just the weekend, just gone. And he was kind of I just threw a kind of not a glib question, but just a standard run-of-the-mill question out about, you know, now that you've left the Department of Justice, what are you going to be focusing on in the Department of Higher Education? And he kind of reeled off very quickly some policy things and then he said, But the actual the real thing is convincing the voters next time around that Sinn Fein do not belong in government. Like this is the essence of Finnegale right now is to gear up, to give the electorate that message that anyone but Sinn Féin is basically what they're saying. And you will see that and and, and you're seeing that that realignment. And I think actually, traditionally, and we started this podcast today by talking about Finnegan and their their call for out to Middle Ireland and the fact that they say that's, you know, part of their identity and everything. To me, I see Sinn Féin actually taking that space. Um, and I think they'll be fighting for those voters, be scrapping for those voters between each other and and... Uh, that'll be the context. That'll be the battleground uh, ahead of the next election. Um, well, I'll be interested to see what Fianna Fáil's uh, particular ploy will be and, and whether they completely rule out going in with Sinn Féin. But that's a topic for a different day, Hugh.
0: Indeed, we will get to that. I think he gave us our podcast title there, Who Speaks for Middle Ireland. We'll leave it on that bombshell. Um, thanks very much to Aidan and to Jen for joining us. Thanks to our producer, John Casey, today and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back with our usual wrap on Friday. But until then, thanks very much for listening.